Hello, and welcome to the Sound on Sound People and Music Industry podcast channel. Today, we're talking to Stuart Tavner. I first met Stuart in his role as a recording engineer and mixer at Sleep Safe Studios, but he's probably better known as the man behind the Xaudia and Extinct Audio microphone brands. He's also pretty much the go-to man for all things ribbon microphone in the UK. Stuart, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? I think there's a, a physics PhD in there somewhere, isn't there? And how you first became interested in the technical side of microphones? It's a good question. So it, it's chemistry rather than physics or physical chemistry, the boundary between the two. A lot of work on things like magnetic resonance, which sounds like a long way away from uh, microphones. But because we were making measurements, principles like signal to noise were extremely important. And we tended to run on fairly low academic budgets, which meant if things broke, they had to be fixed. And I developed uh, some skills in fixing broken amplifiers and uh, similar bits of equipment, sometimes without instructions. I played in bands since I was 14 and was very interested in recording our own music. I think the whole microphone side of things started when I found an old Reslo ribbon microphone at a car boot sale, I took it home plugged it into an old uh, Tascam 4-track, and I thought it sounded wonderful. So being me and being curious about these things, the second thing I did with it was to take it apart, and I broke the ribbon. Absolutely heartbroken. And it probably sat there in a box, and it came to me with, uh, with me to university. And sometime around about the late 1990s, when the internet was just getting going, I found a music discussion group and there was a certain Dave Royer on there who kindly shared some tips about how I might fix this ribbon microphone. So I went away. Through my academic contacts, I was able to get hold of some very thin aluminium foil. I think they were used for x-ray sources at the time for scientific experiments. Um, figured out how to corrugate it and made, um, made a working microphone from what was there. I was really pleased. And then... I guess my academic career didn't really go where I thought it was going to go. And at the same time, the band was doing quite well and we'd started uh, building our own recording studio, again on a limited budget. And I started buying broken bits of equipment with the idea of maybe saving a few quid and fixing them and, and building our studio that way, which worked quite well. In particular, the microphones kept grabbing me. At that time, you could get broken British ribbon microphones for maybe £30, and I could get them working, which was much cheaper than doing something like buying an SM57, for example. And I loved the character of them, I loved the warmth, I loved the way they made you sound instantly like you were on the BBC. And that was really a large part of how I got started with the ribbon microphones in particular. And they do lend themselves to repairs quite nicely. Things are fairly human-sized, and um, it's basic physics rather than esoteric electronics um, that makes them work. So they seem logical to me with my background. And when did you start fixing things for other people? So around about 2007, my academic career had kind of ground to a halt, and I realised I was either going to stay there for the pension or... I could try and do something else. And I made that decision to, to get out. But it wasn't the original plan to fix things for a living. The original plan was to run a recording studio. But it's quite hard, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners will know, to make money from recording music because a lot of people are doing it. And a lot of musicians, they don't have a great budget either. 
So on the side, I, I put up a little website and started offering my services as a general repair guy, which was Exordia. And around about that time, I'd spotted some equipment on eBay, which belonged to an old RCA engineer, including a corrugator. So I bought this corrugator with the intention just to fix my own microphones and maybe make the money back from my initial outlay, which was around about £1,000. I put up the service on the website and within a month I had enough interest to be able to repay that initial investment. So it grew from there. And by 2010, I had a queue of work for the repairs and I still have a queue of work now. It's never got to the point where there weren't broken rib microphones here waiting to be repaired. At the beginning, I was more of a general repair guy, but I did find that I was good at the ribbon microphones. I understood them, and I went more and more into specialising in that direction. So at what point did you realise that you had gone from being fairly handy at fixing things to becoming an expert on ribbon microphones and realising that you had a potential business? I say... I think... It became apparent that it was the business probably after three years. In terms of expertise, I say to people, the first thousand are the hardest. And once you've done a thousand of anything, hopefully you've become quite competent at it. So I think I think around about the thousand mark. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've previously told me that ribbon microphones are fundamentally fairly simple devices. So what kind of challenges does repairing them throw up is it around parts or is it knowledge or is it it's it's details and it's getting things to be reliably repeatable and consistent i think that's that's one of the the, um, challenges so fundamentally they're a very simple device there the way a microphone operates is by having a, a small thin piece of aluminium the ribbon in a magnetic field and the sound waves move the ribbon in the magnetic field which produces an electrical current. It's very similar to a car alternator for example which is why we call it the motor. I know that's backwards but it's very similar. It's the reverse of a motor and we do refer to the working heart of a ribbon microphone as as being the motor. So fundamentally they're simple and that means an awful lot of people have made weird and wonderful versions over the years. And it's, it's very much been a cottage industry with lots of little businesses, if you look at the history of it. Making things for a while and then moving on or um, running out of funding or not getting the customers and so on. And that's one of the really delightful things about it because you're always finding new obscure brands and so on. In terms of challenges, I think things like the, the judging the thickness of the foil that need, you need to use. The If you read the internet, people will say, oh, you need to use 1.8 micrometers or 2.4 micrometers. It's not that simple because the ribbon itself forms a, a filter with the transformer. So the way the ribbon and transformer work together is a little bit more subtle, perhaps, than people first realise. And the ribbon needs to be matched to the transformer or vice versa. So there's the, understanding that element is key. And then being able to work to very close tolerances is also key because as your ribbon gets thinner further away from the magnets, the sensitivity drops off quite rapidly. So you want the ribbon to be as wide as possible, but without touching the magnets. And very often we're working to 0.1 of a millimeter. I, I think that's the real challenge. It's the hand to eye skills. Um, and again, this is why I say the first thousand are the hardest because that's when you're developing the, the look and feel of it um, from a technician. In terms of understanding the physics of it, it's, they're, they're really simple, really simple devices. It's attention to detail as always. That's the, the critical thing. 
I think there's an opportunity here to settle a couple of much debated points about ribbon microphones. The first one is, should ribbon microphones always be stored vertically? I have never seen evidence of sag in a well-made ribbon microphone. That's a very careful answer. <laughs> yeah, yes, it is a careful answer. I think sometimes if microphones are being shipped from overseas on a boat, possibly from the other side of the world, for months and months and months, being rocked, that can actually cause problems with the ribbons. And I'm not necessarily sure that storage, vertical or horizontal, would solve that. Maybe, maybe not. Um, in terms of on the bench, we've never observed it. We, we store our mic microphones pickledy-pickledy sideways, upwards, downwards. The ribbon's so light, if it's, if it's well made, it shouldn't sag. There may be situations where the corrugations have not been made tight enough or deep enough. Maybe there are some issues there, but we, we don't see it. Second question. Phantom power and ribbon microphones. Good, bad, ugly, indifferent. It should not matter. It, it, with a modern rim microphone, it should be transformer balanced. And here's the thing, if it's transformer balanced and it has balanced phantom power, there is no voltage across the microphone. If you short one leg of the transformer, then that's a different matter. And then it's not balanced phantom power anymore. It's just power. And power is bad. Phantom power won't harm a ribbon microphone. So no TRS plugs and patch bays. No TRS plugs and patch bays. Do not run, this This is bad, don't run phantom power through a TRS jack patch bay because that can be bad. Whilst we're on it, I think people can worry about the wrong things. In terms of what we see, we see microphones that have been stretched through um, too much level with the ribbon blown or stretched. We see that commonly. I guess people could mistake that for the ribbon sagging, but it's sagged because it's been overloaded stretched because it's been overloaded. It's not spontaneously dropped its corrugations. We see a lot of dirt inside ribbon microphones. Um, so if you're, if you're putting your microphone repeatedly down on your carpet and the small iron particles, there's stray iron everywhere in dirt and soil. That will suck it straight up and you'll end up with dirt inside the microphone. Saliva, aluminium will oxidise. Uh, we like to think of aluminium as not rusting, but it will oxidise over time with saliva. And wind blasts, bad handling, those are the things which damage your microphone. I'm far more concerned about those things than I am about balanced phantom power and about ribbon sag. So don't overload it, don't put it down on the carpet, yes. don't spit on it, Yes. and... Keep away from wind blasts, don't use them outside without a, without a, a right coat or you know, a, a wind... Or windshield. A suitable windshield, yeah. So moving on then to extinct audio and the, the BM9, why did you choose to use this design or to, to go with this design? What, what led you in that direction? I'd done a lot of modifications of the Bang & Olufsen microphones in particular, and the BM3 was one that I particularly liked working on. So it seemed a logical um, starting point for those things. And when, when they come in very often, those microphones, they've got weak magnets, so we'd replace the magnets, replace the ribbon. Uh, they had 50 ohm transformers, which meant they're quite low output. So we might put a, a new transformer in there. So that was- We're, we're getting into point. my grandfather's ax territory absolutely. there, aren't we? No, absolutely. So um, we'd already got the skills for those kind of repairs and spare parts for it. But the BM9 is not a BM3. They're, the only part you could take off the BM9 and put on the BM3 is the top cap. There is no other common component to it. It's a completely new microphone. No new product launch goes without any hitches. 
what kind of hurdles have you had to overcome with this one? I think the hardest thing for me has been balancing things because I've continued to run the repair shop, which is, I mean, I love working on the old microphones. And then, can I answer it in a roundabout question and tell you a little bit of how um, I was able to get them up and running? Um, yes. Which might actually be the answer to the previous question. So my friend Adam he'd lost his job. And people had asked me for years and years and years, oh, why don't you make your own microphone? Uh, and I'd never had the the manpower to um, to be able to consider doing it. With an extra pair of hands, I thought, well, maybe we can create new microphones and create some useful employment. Adam came on board and that was the opportunity to do it. I didn't want to let go of repairing things because that's what I love doing. So balancing the repair shop with orders for new microphones, I think that's been the hardest thing for me because if we're busy with the new mics, I'm getting behind on repairs. And if we're not busy with the new mics, then it's the usual cash flow issues and, and, and so on. I suppose the hardest thing was doing things like getting the, uh, getting the money together to do it, finding the engineers in England who could make the, the parts for us. That's been a challenge. Um, Did you have to do much in the way of prototyping or were you yeah, fairly yeah, confident we, about... No, we did. I mean, it, it was it was seven months with um, between starting incorporating the business and getting the first microphones out there. Just, I think it's pretty quick, really. But that's quite a long time without any income coming in. I, I suppose we were in a good position anyway because I had quite a long list of people I could call um, and say, "Hey, do you want to try this?" Because I've been doing repairs for ten years by the time that Extinct started. So. I think really we did very well and things went a lot more smoothly than perhaps we'd even anticipated, to be honest. We did find we, we outgrew our infrastructure quite quickly, which is why we've recently had to move everything to a, a new premises. We were, we were definitely getting to the point where we're building limited and then we've just gained an extra pair of hands. So we've got, we've got a third person now, Paul, who's, who's come on board to, to help with things. But I don't want to get to the point where I become a man manager. I just want to I want to use my hands and, and be at the bench, really, which is the major motivation for me. I'm going to come back to that in a bit in terms of future plans. But do you find that the design characteristics of the, the BM9 lend itself to particular roles? Are there particular jobs that you would recommend it for or that, that kind of design? I've learned that my customers will always surprise me and find something new to do with it. I don't really want to say it's for this or it's for that. It's a general purpose uh, ribbon microphone. And the Black Ops version is designed to be a near field version of that. So it has a bit of bass cut in the transformer. That That's the, the thinking behind it. We had a, a customer come along and say, um, can I use this on a kick drum? And I thought, no, but then they did. Uh, you know, with care and a pop shield and it was a closed skin on the front and it sounded really good. People do weird and wonderful things. We've got somebody taking the Valkyrie to record bird sound, which really surprised me. And I had no, I would never have recommended the microphone for that, but he's off in the Orkney Islands recording nature sounds with it. He's put the microphone in a tent. He's built a whole tent as a windshield, which is madness. But if it works, so I'm really reluctant to say this microphone is for X because our, our customers are so, so knowledgeable and they always have their own plans about where a sound will work that... 
you know, general purpose. Try it. Any interesting stories about people who have abused the microphones and maybe you've had somebody coming back and, and said, this doesn't work anymore, or I tried to do this? People are, people are relatively um, sensible in the way that they use them. And we, I always put a, an idiot-proof guarantee on repair anyway, so if they break things within the first few weeks, it's, it's fine. I, I think some of the things which astound me are the way people sometimes send things along we had i always told the story of a an rca 7070x which is well over a thousand pounds worth of rare vintage ribbon microphone and a customer wanted an urgent repair on it so he posted it up to me in an unregistered package a jiffy bag around the microphone and our postman managed to jam it into the letterbox <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, for those who don't know, uh, the 77 is quite a big microphone with a, with a mesh, so we had to um, remove it from the letterbox, straighten the grills and so on and go back. That was one thing that did astound me. So what's next for Exordia and Extinct? You've got this lovely new room. Does this indicate anything of an expansion? Are we going to see anything different coming out of the building or are you at a stable point for the company so it's been a hell of a year for everybody and i think this year is going to be one of consolidation so we've we've managed to pull off a move to a, a nicer premises which is going to be our own home for hopefully the next 20 years that's been a big investment i think we just need to take stock put a little bit of money into the, back into the bank account and uh, go again. I think you won't be seeing condenser microphones from us, uh, despite a, a, a rumour earlier in the year. <laughs> we, we did see your Instagram post. My, my, my E47. I, I, built that, I built that for um, as a clone for our own studio and a few years ago, and I put an extinct badge on it. So it was just a little bit of fun. It was amazing how much interest we got from it. I'm not interested in building condenser microphones until... I could build my own capsule. And if I could make my own capsule, it would become an interesting exercise for me because I, I, re I really think that would be fun and exciting. If it's a case of buying in capsules and electronics and uh, making something and reselling it, it's not me. And again, I'm not an electronics expert. People think perhaps I am, but I, it's electromagnetism that I've come in from. I can get by with electronics, but I, I probably don't have anything new to offer the world. But the the um, the capsule side of it could be interesting. So perhaps um, one day it would be nice, wouldn't it? But I think for the coming year we just have to stick to uh, our core business and um, just consolidate a little bit and then see where the world's at before before going again. We do have a, a mid-side transformer decoder on the horizon for stereo um, microphones. So if you're using a stereo ribbon microphone in mid-side mode, it will give you left and right output. It's it's a very simple device, passive device. So that'll be the next the next thing. So that's just uh, a box that you would plug in that's between the in. microphone and the, the preamp. Mixer. yeah. Well, I think that just about covers the whistle-stop tour of your professional life, Stuart. Thank you very much. I found it fascinating. I'm sure our <laughs> listeners will too. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah, pleasure as always. This has been the Sound on Sound podcast with guru of all things ribbon microphones, Stuart Tevner. Thank you for listening, and be sure to check out the show notes page for this episode, where you'll find more details and web links. And from there, you're only a step away from the soundonsound.com forward slash podcast page, where you can explore what's playing on our other channels. 